You're listening to Directions and Dialogue, a podcast where playwrights speak passionately about their craft. I'm your host, David McKibben, and last week I sat down with Philip Middleton Williams, author of plays such as The Hunter, Can't Live Without You, and All Together Now. We talked about how his education and life experience shaped his artistic endeavors as a playwright and theater scholar, along with his personal interactions with writers such as Lanford Wilson and Robert Anderson. This week, we go into greater depth, discussing how he got the acting bug as a teenager and the vulnerable experiences that inspired his plays The House by the Side of the Road and A Tree Grows in Longmont. So let's take our seats before the curtain rises. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm sitting back down with Philip Middleton Williams, author of plays such as Can't Live Without You, The Hunter, All Together Now, and the novel Bobby Kramer. How are you doing, Philip? Good, thank you. Good to be back with you. It's a pleasure speaking with you again. I realize that like many people who've gotten into theater, be it playwrights, directors, designers, everybody has dreamed of becoming an actor in the past, but you had the opportunity to live that dream when you were working with Vivian Vance at the Cherry County Playhouse when you were 17. Oh, that was, that's a funny little story, and I'll try and give you the short version of it. I had spent the summer working on a farm in Vermont, and I came home, and I was spending some time up in Northport Point, Michigan, where we had a, my grandmother had a summer house. And one of the people that lived there was a woman named Ruth Swiger, Ruth Bailey Swiger. And she was the producing director and the brains behind the Cherry County Playhouse, which was a summer stock theater company in Traverse City, Michigan about 30 miles away from where we were living. They would bring in guest artists and such people as Gavin McLeod, Tom Kennedy, people whose names you would recognize from television and film, some quite impressive names. The year before I did that in 1969, they actually had the first production of Butterflies Are Free, which Mm -hmm. went on to Broadway. And it was an amazing production. I got to see it. Anyway, I was there spending some time relaxing after my work in Vermont. And one night, my mom went to a party at Ruth Bailey's house. And they were talking about theater. And they said, well, we need a kid to come in because we lost one of our actors to play this young man in a play. And my mom piped up and she said, well, Philip is interested in theater. So I remember she came home and woke me up and she said, you have an audition tomorrow at the Cherry County Playhouse down in Traverse City. So I said, okay. So I hopped in my 57 Chevy and drove down there. And I sat with the director, Jack Going and uh, Ruth Swiger. And I I cold read the part. And she said, thank you very much. We're calling in some kids from the Interlochen camp. Interlochen, the same as theater camp, which is about 30 miles away. And I thought, well, I don't have a chance. And as I was sitting there, the phone rang. And people called from Interlochen to say, I'm sorry, we're going to be late. The the battery on the van died. And she said, don't worry about it. The part's been taken. And I remember walking across the parking lot and going, oh my God, I'm going to be in a play with Vivian Vance. And I did. And on Summerstock Theater, you rehearse for a week and you put the play up. And so we did. And it was amazing. And she was like everybody's grandmother. She was a sweet lady and I loved working with her. And I learned an awful lot about comedy in that. Uh, A year later, I came back and did the same thing with Bob Crane of Hogan's Heroes just for one show. And that really was what kicked me into studying theater really taking it seriously as something that might possibly be a career. I hadn't written a play yet, but maybe I could be an actor. What do you think you've learned as an actor from working with Vivian and several of your other co-stars that I think you can take away with you today as a writer? Comic timing, 
when to land a joke, when to land a punchline response. And just timing is everything. Vivian Vance, she could just make the audience laugh with just a look. And there was another actor named Bob Moak, who's, I believe, is still alive. I think he's retired, but he could do comic timing. Just, it was amazing. And I learned to work in a team as an ensemble that I was just one part of it, listening to the director and working together. The play was something called My Daughter, Your Son, which I think ran on Broadway for a very short time. It's just a little sitcom, but it was a lot of fun. And that's what I learned about acting. And I tried to be a comic actor. Didn't do too well at it. <laughs> you told me that you were exposed to Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Canada when you were younger as well. Yeah. That, in fact, that summer, I was working on the dairy farm still. I didn't do much, apparently I didn't do much work on the dairy farm. My parents had been going to Stratford, Ontario to see the Shakespeare Festival. And that summer, my mother said, well, if you can drive up to Montreal and catch a plane and fly down to London, Ontario, we'll meet you. And I did in my 57 Chevy. And I went and I saw The School for Scandal, The Merchant of Venice, and I saw Hedda Gobbler starring Irene Worth. And I was hooked. The amazing thing about Stratford is that this is a small town in southwest Ontario. It's like in the middle of cornfields. And in 1953, they started this Shakespeare festival under a tent. And in the last 68 years, it has grown to be this worldwide festival. The theater runs from May through November. Sometimes they do up to 20 productions. It used to be mainly nothing but Shakespeare. And now they're pulling in all sorts of interesting plays. And over the years, I went almost every year up until 2013 with my parents. I would take my time off and I would go for a week with them. Because we lived close. They were living near Toledo, and so it would be about a four-hour drive across the border. It was a family tradition. The last time we went was 2013, before my parents moved into their retirement community. And I actually went back in 2015 with a friend. And it is the most amazing theater in this little town in the middle of the prairie of southwest Ontario. I have seen amazing productions. I saw people, Peter Ustinoff do King Lear, William Hutt, who is a legendary Canadian actor, Brian Bedford in The Importance of Being Earnest as Lady Bracknell. Lady Bracknell is a drag role. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Before he did the role on Broadway, I assume, right? Well, that was the production. That, that production was what went to Broadway. I think in 2000, I don't remember what year it was. And I saw Christopher Plummer. I saw Brian Dennehy. The amazing thing about Stratford is that they do it so well. I never wanted to see backstage because I didn't want to see how they made the magic. I finally did take a backstage tour and it was even more impressive now that I know how they do it on such a, such a place. That's wonderful. You discuss your experience with your father and coping with his death when you wrote The House by the Side of the Road. Would you like to get into more depth about the short plays that you've written from that series? The first one was a, a play called A Moment of Clarity, which took place in 2014. I was visiting my parents. They had just moved into their retirement community. The next play, I think, was called I'll Be Here, which is about after the father passes away and the son is speaking to him in the spiritual form. And then I went back and started looking at their life together and started off at the young age with a play called House by the Side of the Road, which I think we talked about last time, followed by Blind Number Seven, where as they get older, they're at the duck blind. and then another play about the son going through rehab, and then another play, the, there's one about where they're dealing with the father in hospice. And then the last play in the series is called Good Grief, and it's about how to deal with the passing of the father. And Good Grief was written, I believe Good Grief was the first play I wrote after my father actually passed away in May. And it was basically, this was my way of dealing with my father's death. I come from a sort of a culture where we don't carry on about it. We, we deal with it. It's internalized. We hold ourselves close as a family and we remember the good times and in ways we celebrate the life of our father or our loved one and then go on. 
but this was my way of dealing with my dad's passing. And so I put the seven plays together in chronological order and called the collection A House by the Side of the Road. You also told me that you were working on several short stories and even a novel, Bobby Kramer. What do you think your experience was like writing prose versus something in the dramatic vein? Do you feel like there was a different way of trying to examine characters or examine settings or examine dialogue in a prose setting when you're simply just reading the text versus having it performed by actors on stage? In writing a novel, you have the luxury of just going along. You can fill page after page with description of a setting. You can involve a long period of time. You don't have that in writing a play. In a play, you have to be economical. You have to get it out there. If you haven't engaged the audience in the first five minutes or the first five pages, you've got a problem. With writing a novel, you can take all the time you want. And it took me a long time to write Bobby Kramer, primarily because I didn't really know where it was going to go. I just started writing it and let it take over, which is what happens with a play. But in a play, you realize you've got to do this in in like 90 minutes, whereas a novel can take forever. But it doesn't mean that a novel has to just blather on without any kind of consequence. You have to tell the story, too. So it's very different. As a playwright, I looked at writing a novel as a way of expanding on an idea of a character and then perhaps, not necessarily, but perhaps using that understanding of the character and putting it into the character that I put into a play. I often think that when I come up with an idea for a story, whether it's a play or a novel or a short story, I I have to sort of, I think I see the place first. Studied scene design at the University of Miami under Kenneth Kurtz, and I learned to sort of visualize the space. With a novel, I sort of feel that I'm more introduced to the character first, let him or her or they fill in the space, and then I know where I'm going and it can move around. I mean, Bobby Kramer starts off in Colorado, they go to Ohio, they go to North Andover, Massachusetts, they go to New Mexico. They go to the Caribbean, they're all over the place. And you can't do that in a play unless you've got a really inventive way of doing your scenery. So I think that what I do when I'm writing a story is that I am exploring them. And then when I'm writing a play, I'm basically condensing it down and letting the characters do the talking. I remember last time you talked a lot about your correspondence with Robert Anderson. What was your experience working with him? I realized that you wrote a play that took place in a prep school during your freshman year of high school. How much do you think of that was inspired loosely by Tea and Sympathy, which was, I believe, one of his two best works? The story about meeting Robert Anderson is a little story in itself. I was invited to the Inge Festival in 1991, and I was invited by the Inge family, by people that I knew growing up who were descendants of William Inge. In fact, Joanne Kirschmeyer, who was a childhood friend and lived across the street from me, was his executor. So I was invited in 1991. So I arrived there, and I'm thinking, I'm really cool because I'm friends with the Inge family. And so I show up at this cocktail party and I walk up to the bar. There's a very distinguished looking gentleman standing there. And I said, can I get a gin and tonic? And he says, sure. And he starts to pull up a glass and put some ice in it. And then this kid walks out carrying a bag of ice and he's wearing a bartender's uniform. And I look at the gentleman and he says, hi, I'm Bob Anderson. And I wanted a hole to open underneath me and just take me down to the seventh level of hell. And immediately we became friends and we started talking about playwriting, about what we had in common, the story of Tea and Sympathy, I had I'd never seen the play, but I had seen the movie and I'd read it. And in some ways, I certainly identified with the character, understanding what it's like to be gay or to be thought of as gay, because I don't think the character, I don't want to get into dramatic criticism. I don't think the character is gay. I think he's accused of it because he's just different. Well, I certainly felt different when I was at prep school. The idea for Dark Twist didn't come from essentially from my communication and my, and my friendship with Bob Anderson. It came from running into one of my former classmates from that prep school in 
New York about 18 years after I had been there. And I thought about our relationship and I thought about what the school meant to me. And so when I sat down to write Dark Twist in 1985, Teen Sympathy was in the back of my mind, but it isn't really derived from it. But the place, the atmosphere, the culture, the very strict structure of social levels of being an insider or an outsider or an outcast or a minor god is very, very prevalent in Bob's play, Teen Sympathy, and very prevalent, I think, in what I wrote. And so when I decided to rewrite it a couple of months ago, I went back and I looked at Teen Sympathy, not to steal any ideas, because you can't, because they aren't the same story, but to sort of get the feeling of the claustrophobia of the location, which is ironic because where the play takes place, the actual setting is a large classroom. It's a big open classroom, but there is that feeling of claustrophobia that I wanted to have. And I felt that with T and Sympathy. I do believe I did send it to him. He liked it. He had a couple of comments about it. And I wish he was around to see the final version of it because I would have done him proud to have seen that final version of it. Going into the topic of being an outsider, being different, especially in a place that might be very claustrophobic or inhibiting. We talked briefly about your play, The Sugar Ridge Rag, and how it was loosely derived from your experience as a gay man and a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. How do you think you were able to process that and turn that into what has become The Sugar Ridge Rag? The overriding issue in The Sugar Ridge Rag is the choice that the twins have to make. And as I think I said in the last time we talked, they're two different versions of the same person. They're identical twins, which start out as one egg and then split and become two people. I remember feeling rather defiant and rather proud of myself in 1970, that I was standing up against the establishment. I was not out, but I felt that being a conscientious objector in very conservative Ohio was enough. And I felt defiant, the teenage arrogance of, I believe in what I'm doing, and this is important to me, and this is more important than anything else. And I think that's how it played into it. And when I see that in the character of Pete in the play, he basically, and his brother tells him, you know, you did what you wanted to do and the heck with everybody else, although I use stronger language in the play. And, you know, you did it for yourself. And what about me? And you went off and left me. And for the first time in our lives, we were separate and we we're going very different ways. And in a way, I kind of felt that myself thinking, you know, here I am defying everything that society wants from me and standing up for my own beliefs and probably making it not very easy for my parents or for their friends who knew my situation and what I was doing. And certainly not making it easy for my friends who were also, and not everybody I knew was anti-war and they were thinking, why are you not standing up for your country? So that really played into how I wanted to develop those characters in that play and, and, and boiling it down to that being uh, the essence of this story of these two brothers going off in very different directions. I thought if I did something and made a cliche out of it, and spoiler alert, having the brother who went off to war be killed and then the guilt trip, I thought, you know, people who went off to war who came back and survived were wounded too. And they had to go through some terrible things too. But they had to come to terms with that. So that's what I was trying to put into that part of the play. And Pete does come out to his brother, and he eventually comes out to his parents. And he finds a partner in Canada. But it's not a major storyline in the play. It, but it's, it's one element of it. I think it's one aspect of it, one facet of it. You also told me about your experience with your partner, who was a very integral part of your life and whose mm -hmm. family has been a strong support system. Mm -hmm. And you told me about how he inspired the play A Tree Grows in Longmont, which you wrote. Uh, right. Could you elaborate on that in greater detail? Alan Fonensteel, I met him when I was at my second year of graduate school. And the story of our meeting is in the play. We met at a spring dance 
hosted by the University of Colorado Boulder Gay Lesbian Alliance. He asked me to dance. And then the next night I called him up and we went out on a date. He brought me flowers. And Alan came from a different background than I did. He came from a working class background in Colorado. Originally, his family was originally from Hayes, Kansas. His mom owned a restaurant. His father was retired on disability. He had a large family of siblings. were all wonderful people. And I got to slowly meet them. I was introduced to his mother at her restaurant, the Gateway Cafe in Lyons, Colorado. And they became my family. As much as Alan was my family and as much as my family is my family, they spent holidays with them. I was included in all of the big family events because Alan would not have it any other way. And Alan in, in Tree Grows and Longmont, his idea was, come on, it'll be fun. We'll have an adventure. And he was like that. And we were together for 15 years until 1999. We went from Colorado to Michigan to work with my father and then back to New Mexico. And then we split up amicably in 1999. But we stayed very close, always on the phone. I always called him on his birthday. I talked to his parents. I talked to his mom. When his mom passed away in 2014, the family asked me to write her obituary. And then in 2017, around Christmas, Alan had what I think was called a stroke. They, they weren't sure. But he got sick and then uh, he passed away on June 8th, 2018. I didn't know what to do about it. I couldn't write about it. And then finally, about six months later, I sat down and wrote a monologue called Alan's Big Adventure. And it was me saying to him, well, you're off on the biggest adventure of them all. And then I recounted our life together. And from that, I thought, I think this could be a story, a play. And so on the first anniversary of his death, they planted a small tree in a park near his house. I was going to go. I couldn't go. But I decided I would write a play about it. So I wrote a play called The Tree Grows in Longmont. And it's very different from any other play I've ever written. It's open stage. And Alan comes out and says, hi, folks. It's kind of like the beginning of our time. He says, hi, I'm Alan and I'm dead. And this is our story. And Philip will be out here in a minute. But I just wanted to tell you that we're going to act out all the parts. And there will be some things that lights are going to change. But this is basically just the two of us talking. And we go through, basically, in 25 minutes, we go through our life together. And then I ended it with that monologue. And the last line is a quote from Peter Pan. As Tinkerbell says to Peter Pan, to die is an awfully big adventure. And uh, that's what my life was like with him. And so I think... Ricky J. Martinez of Silver Tongue Stages down here in Miami did it for Zoom about a year ago, and it was a wonderful production, and it was out there, it's on YouTube, and I was very proud of it. And his influence on my life is permanent. He, he shows up in a lot of my plays. There are still signs of him all over this house, and he's going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. <laughs> that picture behind me, that's him. So that's where that comes from. As we talked about earlier, writing a play, you, you put your life into every, everything you write. Wonderful. You currently live in Miami and you've been actively involved in the South Florida theater scene for a long time. Not only did you get your undergrad at UM, but you also have worked with a variety of different companies ranging from City Theater to Miami New Drama to Zoetic Stage to the defunct New Theater where Anna and the Tropics made its premiere before it went to Broadway. Miami has gotten such an amazing theater scene. And even during the pandemic, when it's been a very difficult year for theater, and I'm not minimizing that at all, but the spirit and the strength of so many people, like the South Florida Theater League, the Miami New Drama just got a nomination for an award from the Drama League for their production of Seven Deadly Sins. Michelle Hausman and that group have really done an amazing lot of work. It's so energizing to see them do that. City Theater with Susie Westfall and Margaret Ledford and their work over the last 25 years of presenting nothing but short plays. And they have started off with a summer season 25 years ago, and they are now practically year round and doing amazing things. I was honored to have them do two of my little plays. Zoetic Stage, started by Stuart Meltzer and Michael McKeever, 
is a force of nature in taking on amazing productions and doing some magnificent work. And I'm sort of peering in their window and I'm, I'm not jealous. I am supportive of them so much because that's really where theater is beginning. And I mentioned Ricky J. Martinez, who was with New Theater. He took over New Theater and doing such an amazing work there. They had a production a few years ago of 12 Angry Men that, that was as good as anything I've ever seen anywhere and no slouch at all with that. So the theater scene here is growing so strong. I'm just talking about what I've seen in Miami. I know there's a lot of stuff going on up in Broward County and in Palm Beach that I, I can't off the top of my head even think of the names of those. It really is powerful and people are working, whether it's through Zoom or whether they're helping to put things together so that when we come back and when we do come back, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be explosive with new theater scenes going on all over this area. And I have been so fortunate because the people that I've touched down here have, have been involved with in meeting and, and, and talking to, like Andy Arthur with the South Florida Theater League. These people are so dedicated to this craft of making theater work here. You used to joke about theater being so high school, I mean, so cliquey, and everybody would be off in their little groups and this group over here, and they wouldn't work with that group. That does not happen here. In fact, I really wasn't sure that it really ever did happen. Everybody is working for everybody else, and they're all for the same goal of really making theater happen. And that's just amazing. And I, when I came back here 20 years ago, I was so happy to see that there were things that were starting to pick up again. And it's been the last five or six years, it's just been amazing. You look at places like Main Street Players over in Miami Springs. I'm going to forget names of people that I've worked with. It's, it's really a powerful force here. Not a lot of people thought of Miami as being a real theater town, but boy, it really is growing. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I'm especially grateful for and looking forward to moving forward into the post-COVID era. Once again, remember to check out Philip Middleton Williams's plays on the New Play Network and on Smith Scripts. And also, don't forget to check out his production of A Tree Grows in Longmont, which is on YouTube. The link is provided below. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Have a wonderful day. Tune in next week as we sit down with Native American playwright Tara Moses. Be sure to like Directions and Dialogue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our episodes are available for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. Directions and Dialogue is produced and hosted by David McKibben. Music comes courtesy of Twin Musicom.